This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Congratulations, you found us. Come on in, out of the cold. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> uh, nobody says that anymore. You can, can you say that? Can you say that anymore? Well, we're saying it right now. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett, and we are coming to you from our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM, from the Liberty Village neighborhood here in Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace and love, baby. Still have a little bit of grit in my, uh, uh, maybe some of that desert sand. I just got back from uh, Albuquerque. I'll tell you about that later. Fascinating trip to the uh, southwest uh, Bilderberg tracker Daniel Estulin is standing by via Skype from somewhere in South America. I've kind of lost track. Uh, he, he's so busy and travels so much. He's either in Venezuela or Colombia, but we'll find out in a moment. Uh, we'll uh, give you a taste of our upcoming live event. Daniel will uh, be joining me live uh, Sunday, April 17th at the University of Toronto for the Bilderbergs, and he'll be presenting in person his Canadian or the Canadian premiere of his brand new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. And I just finished, I watched it a couple of days ago, and I have to tell you, it is a triumph. Uh, And it is not to be missed. Uh, And tickets uh, for the Bilderbergs, again, Sunday, April 17th, still available on my live events page, strangeplanet.ca. Also, you can order by phone at 416-916-1696 or at conspiracyculture.com. Uh, that's Patrick and Kadena's, uh, our dear friends from Conspiracy Culture, conspiracyculture.com. You can order online there as well. Now, uh, for the next week, 
if you buy your tickets for the Bilderbergs in store, in store only at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West, use the code word Rockefeller and you'll receive a 20% discount off the purchase price of your tickets. Once again, if you buy your tickets in store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West in Toronto, use the code word Rockefeller, and Patrick and Kadena will give you a 20% discount off the purchase price of your tickets. All right. Now, hey, good news. We believe we have resolved our HOA issues. Hang out on air. So once again, we will be live streaming the radio program tonight on YouTube. And of course, uh, Albert is here and uh, Ian, my capable colleagues, uh, Ian in the other room, twisting the knobs and dials and getting set for another uh, a tour with his rockabilly band. You're, you're going on an extended trip in June, I think. You're touring and then you're going to be over in England for the big Glastonbury Festival. Good, You're not playing. You, one day you will be performing at the Glastonbury Festival. I have every confidence, Ian. All right. Uh, and Albert, of course, here, as I say, um, my trusty uh, story producer, and he also runs our HOA. Incidentally, if you want to watch the live stream, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Click on the HOA link that's in the tweet at the top or near the top of my Twitter feed. Again, that's at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, please follow. Uh, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca, and click on the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Uh, and Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits, including, this is a rather timely piece, it's a reprint from last year, uh, but it's from the Guardian newspaper. It's a piece by Charlie Skelton, and uh, he attempts to explain why the mainstream media does not report on the annual Bilderberg meeting. Uh, the, uh, the headline or the kicker on the story is, at the G7... Charlie writes, at the G7, we journalists were pampered. At Bilderberg, were harassed by police. Uh, so that's just one of the stories you'll find posted in the slide carousel at the Conspiracy Show uh, website. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the radio page. All right, let's talk Bilderbergs. Danny Lestelin is an award-winning investigative journalist. He's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and a Nobel Prize. He's the author of a number of books, including Deconstructing WikiLeaks, uh, The Octopus Deception, Shadow Masters, uh, and The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which is a runaway bestseller, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, where they're, you know, they're, they're very keen on this stuff and they're very aware of it. They don't have the firewall around the mainstream media. They know about the Bilderberg groups, the average person. They're concerned about it. Uh, yet here, I don't know, we seem to be a little bit asleep, but hopefully we'll change that to starting tonight. And um, if you haven't uh, purchased a copy of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, you really ought to. Uh, and, of course, you'll have an opportunity to buy the book at the event and get Daniel to sign it for you on uh, April the 17th. Uh, but um, this is, a, this is an, an amazing piece of work where he delves into a, a, a world which, which was once shrouded in complete mystery – uh, and really impenetrable security. Uh, this report provides a fascinating account of the annual meetings of the world's most powerful people, the Bilderberg Group. And since its, its inception in 1954 at the Bilderberg Hotel in the small Dutch town of Oosterbeek, uh, the Bilderberg Group has been comprised of European prime ministers, American presidents, 
the wealthiest CEOs of the world, all coming together to discuss the economic and political future of humanity. And the working press, as I say, has never been allowed to attend, uh, at least sort of the, uh, those who sort of work in the trenches for the mainstream media. Now, the owners of the mainstream media, they certainly attend, but they're sworn to secrecy. Anyway, let's find all about it. Again, Daniel Estulin will be live uh, here in Toronto, Sunday, April 17th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto. And uh, right now he joins us on The Conspiracy Show. Daniel, how are you, my friend? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Richard. And I've lost track of you. Are you in Colombia or Venezuela tonight? I'm in Colombia. I'm in Bogota right now. You're in Bogota. All right. And uh, I mentioned that you you were asked to speak to parliaments uh, in South America, Latin America, uh, across Europe. You've met with Fidel Castro, who has a copy of your book. You signed a book for him. Uh, what are these? When you're speaking before these parliaments, are you talking about the Bilderbergs? Are they interested in hearing about the Bilderbergs? Well, it depends because my first. Uh um, uh, speech uh, in uh, in European Parliament, which would be the equivalent of the United States Congress, uh, was back in 2010, I think it was, and uh, I was invited by Mario Borghesio, who is a, one of the uh, key members of uh, Lega Nord, which is uh, the uh, right uh, group in the European Parliament, and uh, I gave a historic 15-minute speech on on the Bilderbergers, and uh, um, we had. Uh, um, journalists from 47 countries attending my uh, my conference or press conference uh, I should say and uh, uh, it certainly was uh, you know a, a, a very important moment in, in getting this stuff out into the open then I gave another speech a couple of years later on uh, on the uh, um, uh, the economic collapse also the European Parliament I gave a speech uh, at the Venezuela National Assembly in uh, in July in front of the uh, all the congressmen and then uh, of uh, of the nation, and uh, we talked about you know the future of humanity, the economic downturn. I mentioned Bilderberg, you know the Latin American economic situation, and then just now about two weeks ago, I was invited. Uh, was actually awarded uh, uh, Latin America's highest prize for journalism in Mexico, and uh, they asked me to speak. Uh, uh, to the nation, uh, um, alive uh, from the uh, National Congress, and uh, that was also a, you know, historic first where we talked about, you know, the need for Latin American nations to unite, and uh, you know, get, get rid of the uh, elitists who control the countries from behind the scenes, and uh, that was an, an hour and a half. Uh, speech to the nation uh, broadcast live. Just imagine if we could do something like that from the United States Congress, you know, broadcast live to the entire nation talking about the Bilderbergers or the world itself. Well, let's talk about uh, the group. And I, I, I sort of gave kind of a summation of, of who they are. But let's drill down a little bit on that. And, and we know they started in 1954 at the, the Bilderberg Hotel. That's why the <coughs> name has stuck. And they, they've met every year without fail since 1954. Is that correct? That's right. They meet once a year, usually about uh, uh, May. Sometimes they meet in June, but generally speaking, it's somewhere in the middle of May. Uh, this year, it's uh, it's going to be held uh, in May in the Sierra City, California. It's Northern California. It's a tiny little town of about two hundred people. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, built by the uh, by the Masons. I, I can't remember exactly when. It was like uh, hundred and fifty years ago, something like that. But uh, it's a, it's it's kind of an odd little place, uh, but uh, it's certainly you know enough out of the way uh, for most people not to attend. But I think uh, 
you are going to get uh, quite a few people uh, attending these Bilderberg conferences because, you know, ever since my book came out back in 2005, uh, it has, uh, you know, gained quite a popularity. And uh, and so people come to these Bilderberg meetings as, as they used to go to the Woodstock um, uh, music festival and you know back in the old days Jim Tucker and I were the only ones who attended these meetings and uh, now you know today you have people coming from all over the world especially if it's you know the meetings are held in North America you get quite a sizable you know, North American following right you know, uh, and, and it's interesting that and- for years they denied there was such a group and then and thanks to you and you mentioned Jim Tucker who has again worked tirelessly on on uh, reporting on this and in infiltrating this group they finally f- had to admit Okay, yes, we agree. We we do exist and we do meet, but there's nothing to hide and so forth. When did that change? Was it as a result of your work and Jim Tucker's work revealing their secrets that you know, they, here's where they're meeting, here's the list of attendees? Is that when they had to the, you forced them to admit they exist? You know, I wouldn't say I forced them, but it- you know, I certainly had uh, you know a, a hand in, in getting them to uh, you know to become a bit more open than what they, you know what they used to be. Uh, you know, certainly Bilderberg has also over the years. You know, the the, the, the entire perspective of, of the organization itself changed back in the in the fifties when the when the group was founded into the nineteen sixties. It was basically you know initially started as an organization put together literally by the Nazis or the people who are very much associated with you know with Nazi ideologies both on the American side and the European side. And so the whole point of Bilderberg when it was first put together by people such as Prince Bernard, who was a Nazi-carrying SS uh, car-carrying member up until 1934 uh, when he married Queen Julianne of, of the Netherlands. And uh, Walter Hallstein who was the first president of the European, European Commission. He was a Nazi lawyer for Hitler. And then on the American side, you had the Rockefellers, you know, the, the, the Prescott Bushes, and, you know, the, the Harrimans, the Dulleses, and so on and so forth. And all of these people, you know, as I said, they were or directly involved with the Nazis, as was the case with uh, Prince Bernard, or they, uh, you know, had dealings with the Nazis, you know, made money of the Nazis, or basically, you know, hid the, all the loot which they made uh, during the Second World War, such was the case with the Dulleses who were hiding Rockefeller's money. And so uh, when Bilderberg was first put together, Richard, uh, in 1954, it's actually, the, you know, the, the impetus to put together this organization began literally right at the end of the Second World War. And so the idea behind Bilderberg initially was, you know, to take all that, you know, stolen money, wealth, plunder, the Second yeah. World War, and bring it to South America and hide it there. And then in 1954, when the group was officially founded, all that, you know, wealth was brought back to Europe, you know, and, and you had the Fourth Reich recreated, uh, but not recreated as a Fourth Reich, but rather through the European Parliament, which is, you know, if you kind of look at the statues of the European Parliament, it's, you know, carbon copy of what the, you know, what the Nazis were trying to put together. All right, Daniel, I got to jump in here because we're going to take a time out. We'll come back, continue to discuss the Bilderbergs, the true story of the Bilder group, uh, Bilderberg group, the author, Pulitzer Prize nominee Daniel Estulin right here. We'll talk about his new movie and our upcoming event when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers... If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. 
or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Daniel Estelin is with us, the Bilderberg Tracker, investigative journalist, award-winning <coughs> investigative journalist, and uh, the author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which has sold millions of copies uh, it's uh, you know it's a runaway bestseller across Europe and has been out for when did that come out now it's been what eight nine years Daniel actually this year we're celebrating the tenth anniversary the tenth. so we just yeah we just celebrated tenth anniversary it was first released in Spain back in September two thousand and five and now this year is the tenth anniversary in in the United States and I think we are doing a new edition which is going to be out with Trine Day uh, in in September of uh, of two thousand and sixteen. Excellent. Okay, so when you uh, when you come here on uh, Sunday, April the seventeenth, and you're going to be presenting the the Canadian theatrical premiere of your new movie, the Bilderberg movie, and and it, congratulations, it's a triumph. It's just it's I mean it's cinematically it's beautifully shot. There's a lot of original footage in there from around the world. The music, the way it's edited together, some amazing amazing interviews. Uh, but, but talk to me a little bit about how that movie came together. Well, you know, it came together back in 2000 and I think it was nine when uh, uh, an American Hollywood producer approached my publisher in the United States with the idea of making a documentary on the Bilderberg Group. And we were in the process of actually working on the script when the producer called and, um, you know, he's going to remain nameless. And he basically said that he was pulling out of the project because he got a call from, we don't know who exactly, but, you know, the call was scary enough for the guy to pull out. And then uh, about in 2012, a, a Spanish uh, um, real estate developer who had a lot of money and was really a big fan of my work um, basically uh, uh, bought the rights to the uh, documentary and he wanted to, uh, you know, to produce it in, uh, in Spain. And uh, again, we were not only in the process, we had the, we had the script initially uh, finished and we were in the process of getting the crew together to go on the uh, on this uh, on the tour of getting the interviews because in the end this film you know we traveled to 13 countries uh, 15 cities uh, you know original interviews from all over from you know from from three continents and uh, while we're getting that together in 2012 if you believe in conspiracy theories or coincidence theories three banks where you know where this man had you know had loaned him money they called in the loans on the same day and, be, and they basically bankrupted him and so uh, you know I, I basically bought him out and I put my money into the project and me and uh, and a friend of mine, or ex-friend of mine, we uh, basically decided, you know, to take it over and, and you know, to do the rest of it. And the film was, you know, done in in July of. Uh of uh, 2015 when my former partner called me and he basically said that Baker and Taylor, that's a subsidiary of the Carlisle group, you know, the Bushes, the Bin Ladens, etc. They basically bought him out. And so I had, you know, the Bin Ladens and the Bushes as my partners on the Bilderberg film. (laughs) (laughs) If you could believe that, you know, so basically these people own the half of the negative and I own the other half. So I knew that if these were my partners, there was no way this film was going to ever come out. So basically what I did is I fired them as my partners and we went around the world and in two and a half months reshot all the interviews with all the people we had on board. And, uh, you know, so the film that uh, people are going to be seeing on the uh, 17th of April, that's in a couple of weeks, that's 100% my production, you know, my money. I'm the, uh, you know, the script writer on the film. And uh, as you said, it's, uh, the music is original. Uh, we've traveled to 13 countries, 
15 cities, you know, to get this done. And it's, uh, it's unlike anything else out there. Well, people are in for a real treat. treat. And, and this is an important document uh, that, that you've put together. Not only, um, well, it's kind of a nice compendium piece to the to the book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. And you say there's a revised uh, edition coming out uh, for the 10th anniversary. Now, you also uh, have been in peril as a result of your work uncovering the secretive group, the Bilderbergs. And I remember you telling me a story, I think it's in the book as well, about an incident with an elevator shaft. Well, that was way back when. Yeah, it, that was in Toronto when, uh, in 1996 or nine, yeah, I think it was 1996 when, when the Bilderbergs met in King City. Jim Tucker and I had just uncovered. Uh, no, it was uh, it was in '96. Yeah, but uh, uh, a few months before that, we uncovered uh, some of their plans of uh, not only getting Canada to split up, you know, through the Quebec referendum, which took place in 1995, <clears throat> but also the information we were getting from my sources. You know, the King City uh, uh, meeting went a long way in, in scuttling some of their further plans for North American Union. And so I was meeting a source in uh, I don't remember the name of uh, of uh, of the uh, skyscraper in Toronto. It's been so long now. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, once the meeting was done, I pressed the button and the elevator doors opened and there was no no floor. And the only reason I'm still talking today because you know, this member of the Bilderberg group, he pulled me out of the shaft. And then when the police arrived, they basically said to me that I was really lucky to be alive because they said, you know, when the mafia kills, it's not you get some big fat guy, you know, pushes you down the shaft. But when the doors open, there's no floor. It's the inertia that pushes you down the shaft. And this is, and I said to him, you know, you, you have no idea how right you are. So that was a very, you know, close call. But it was one of many. And in 2003, in France and Versailles, I was actually Bilderberg emissaries. And I also talk about it in the book. They offered me a blank check to basically cease and desist and go away and stop writing on, the, uh, you know, the things on the Bilderbergers. And uh, as I looked at the man, I said to him, you know, uh, please help me out. How many zeros is one's freedom worth? So they kind of looked at me and uh, they said, you can keep it as a momentum mistrust, And they walked away. Because <laughs> they knew you weren't going to cash it. And you could have. I have a cashed. check. I have a, I, I could have. I could have. I have a check at home. Just, you know, the, just to give you an idea that I still have it. Now, give us a sense of the of the of the, the structure of the Bilderberg I know there's this kind of a permanent membership there's a steering <coughs> committee and then there are those who are invited uh, and they come from various quarters industrialists bankers um, media moguls scientists uh, but give us a sense of the structure of the Bilderberg group well Bilderberg basically is your former NATO alliance it's Western Europe Canada and the United States it's one of many private and secretive organizations that they're not a secret society. The only uh, secret society in North America or in the United States is Skull and Bones, which was founded in 1832, and uh, it wasn't known until uh, 19, uh, 1980. And so that's a secret society. The Bushes, you know, uh, there were members, three generations of the Bushes were members of Skull and Bones. And, uh, you know, they directly come from the, you know, famous Bavarian Illuminati. But uh, the Bilderbergers, you have the Trilateral Commission, which was founded by David Rockefeller back in 73, which is America's Europe and Asia, thus Trilateral Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which was founded in England, and in England is called Chatham House. And that's, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the American elitists who basically, you know, your parallel government of the United States. You have the Prince circle in Europe. You have, you know, Bohemian Grove that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly well known in, in North America as well. You have a lot of these, 
you know, private organizations, think tanks, foundations, they all work together. And Bilderberg is just one of the more elitist of these groups. Uh, Bilderberg is about 120, 130 members who are annually invited to this, you know, private soiree. Again, people who come are uh, presidents, prime ministers, ministers of defense, finance, uh, finance ministers, you know, your top billionaires, uh, CEOs of leading corporations, you know, obviously in the mainstream publications are also invited. The sitting president of the United States never usually comes to these meetings because it's very difficult to get away, you know, and not be seen for three days. But it is, you know, it, you know we, we, can, we can show that. In 2008, both uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama, they attended a Bilderberg conference when they met in Chantilly. Uh, there were way, if you remember that famous incident, it just kind of disappeared out of the plane. Yes, I heard well, about they that. Appeared, you know, yeah, they magically appeared at the Bilderberg conference. You had Bill Clinton who attended in 1995 in Baden-Baden before he was president. And at that meeting, David Rockefeller kind of you know pulled him aside and asked him. That was in 91. I think that was in 91. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he asked him what you know what he thought of the North American Free Trade Agreement, and, and Clinton had no idea what that was. And so Rockefeller gave him a master class, and he said, you know, Mr. Clinton, Bill, would you support it? You know, if you were president, and he said, is it important enough to you, David? And he said, yes, it is. And uh, Clinton said, of course I would. And so Rockefeller, you know, stretched out his hand and said, you know, thank you, Mr. President. Well, we know what happened, you know, in, in 1992. He became president in, uh, in 1993. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Well, that's so it. Let me uh, just back up there for a moment. Uh, that's, again, Danny, if I could just jump in and, pick, uh, and, and talk about that, because that's a fascinating uh, chapter, obviously, in American history. And people may, may not remember that here he was, uh, Clinton, uh, the, 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 the governor of Arkansas, and, um, you know, a, a, not a very big state, not a powerful state, a very poor state. He was making, what, maybe $35,000 a year. Exactly, exactly. He, he was an unknown. And then immediately he bursts onto the scene. And before even anyone knows who he is, the mainstream media is declaring him the front runner. Is that how the – how does the Bilderberg wield power in, in order to get behind a candidate? How do they wield their influence and power? Well, again, this not you know Clinton's not the first case. If you kind of go back to you know to nineteen seventy three, nineteen seventy four, when when the Trilateral Commission was founded, you know the same thing happened with you know Jimmy Carter was one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission. You know there there he was, a you know, peanut farmer from Georgia. You know one day with three uh, percent approval rating, in, you know in the United States, not only who he was, and then the next day he's the president of the United States. Well, that's how things work. The power of the mainstream corporations. The mainstream media, because what the mainstream has done in the United States is they've convinced people that what you see on the cover of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, CNN, Fox, et cetera, et cetera, has to be the truth. And everything else, obviously, you know, consequently has to be a big lie. So what you and I are talking about doesn't exist because it's not on the cover of the New York Times. And that's what a lot of the times people say to me. Well, now a lot less so because of all the things, you know, that I've done, all the, you know, awards that I've won, the name recognition. But initially, you know, that was, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, their, their, their defense. Well, if what you're saying is true, why is it not on the cover of the New York Times? Because what people, again, don't understand or don't seem to want to understand is that the mainstream publications, they form part of this world elite. Not, 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 not one mainstream media source is free to report as they wish the things that they want to report. So if you kind of look at some of these corporations, such as the New York Times, for example, uh, one of the key shareholders is Chase Manhattan Bank. That's David Rockefeller outfit. 
You know what I mean? So it's all this, you know, this, this interwined corporations. They all work together. There's no way anybody can, you know, strike off on their own. And, uh, and, and that's how, you know, the, the control is exercised, you know, through the mainstream publications. Uh, because, again, a lot of these corporations are traded on Wall Street. So you can easily destroy any one of them uh, by, uh, you know, by, by playing them off against, you know, the, main, the, the opinion of the masses. Is there and, anything uh, illegal? Kind of, is there anything illegal? I often hear the, the, the Logan Act, for example, thrown out there and said, "Well, listen, if if citizens or or a um, a senator, a state senator, or an elected official goes to these uh, meetings, they're in violation of the Logan Act. But are they really? Aren't they just? I mean, they're are they breaking a law? I guess is my question. I you know I I guess technically they are, but you know. Richard, you know, if you kind of look at you know how everybody meets, and it's I don't care if you're talking about the president of the United States meeting with his you know officials, if you're talking about uh, uh, you know congressmen, European commissioners, uh, you know trilateral commission, international monetary fund, World Bank, G7, all of you know Davos, all of these meetings are held in private. And the reason that they're held in private is that they don't want the public to know what they're talking about. So, you know, you could say the same thing about a hockey team. You know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, when the coaching staff are planning their strategy, the, you know, the whole thing is done in private. The media is not invited. You know, so you could, you know, technically say that they're in violation of the Logan Act. And probably it's true. But, you know, that would be the least of their worries because, again, all of these things are done in private. And most of the times, we didn't know that these things exist. And so until my book came out in, you know, 2005, we knew, uh, people knew that, you know, you had your coup d'etats and, you know, the, the economic cycles and the 1973, you know, oil embargo and the price increased by 400%. People, you know, in, in, you know, instinctively knew or know that something is doing somehow something behind the scenes. They just, you know, didn't quite figure out who was doing what to whom until my book came out. And then you had... You know, the names and the faces and their deeds and the documents and the deliberations. And suddenly these they, invisible they until then, you know, became visible. And we knew who they were and people immediately thought that, aha, so the Bilderbergers run the world. Bilderbergers don't run the world. What they do do is meet secretly as everyone else does. But needless to say, the things that they talk about obviously go against the interests of 99% of humanity. Right. And as I always say, um, um, and people say, well, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. The idea here is that they, they're at least they're attempting to stage manage events. It, does, events. it doesn't mean they're always successful. But the fact that they're trying and that their interests don't coincide with our interests. Uh, we're, we're coming up on a break here. Let's just start this conversation now and we'll continue after the break. But I, I, you, you mentioned the oil uh, uh, crisis of uh, 1973 and this is, this is brought up in the film and we don't want to give everything away obviously. But <coughs> this is an example uh, of how you say the Bilderbergs uh, manipulate and manage – stage manage events. Talk to me about – let's start the discussion of what happened in 1973 with the oil crisis and how the Bilderbergs were involved. Oh, let me give, you know. Let, let me give you another example, which is much closer to Canada. You know the whole you know Quebec independence thing. The reason I got into Bilderberg, Richard, is because in 1992 I was in Toronto having lunch in, you know at a Spanish restaurant just off of Young Street with a guy, a friend of mine, uh, who was ex-member of the KGB, Soviet KGB, and of a steak and potato sandwich uh, lunch. This guy, matter-of-factly, told me in 1992 that in 1995 there's going to be a referendum in Quebec, and the people who run the world from behind the scenes are going to try to separate Quebec, you know, from the rest of Canada and merge English-speaking Canada with the United States. And, you know, when I asked him why, he said because the people in Washington needed to balance their budget. 
1995 comes around, and all these characters that none of us have ever heard of, you know, these extremist parties, you know, the, the Reform Party, and, you know, some of these pipsqueak parties, you know, from Atlantic Canada, and, you know, this, you know the, the, the uh, nationalists uh, uh, in Quebec, particularly Quebec, and so on and so forth, all these individuals, most of them had, you know, had absolutely you know, no business being on mainstream television. They were front and center. And it appeared that the prime minister of Canada and the president of the United States were powerless to stop, you know, this juggernaut. And then when that happened, and I remember what happened back in 1992, okay, I said to myself, if the presidents and prime ministers are powerless to do anything about this, you know, who the heck runs the world? And that's how I got into Bilderberg. All right. Fascinating. Fascinating. When we come back, maybe we'll touch on the oil... Uh crisis as well. The energy crisis. People of a certain age will remember that. Lineups at the gas station. All right, we will uh, continue our conversation with the Bilderberg tracker, Daniel Estillin. Again, coming to Toronto Sunday, April the 17th. Go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca to get your tickets. Back with more in a moment. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a programming note. Next week on the program, filmmaker uh, Patria Patrick will be here uh, to talk about her new movie on the Titanic. Our fast approaching that anniversary. And uh, also our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, will drop by for her usual monthly visit. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Daniel Estulin, the Bilderberg tracker, joins us. Pulitzer Prize nominee, Nobel Prize uh, nominee, award-winning investigative journalist and um, the author of many books, including The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which is now celebrating its 10th anniversary, and there's a revised edition uh, that's coming out. And um, you can uh, get a signed copy of that book at the uh, the live event we're uh, having here in Toronto at the University of Toronto, Sunday, April the 17th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. And you can go to uh, the live events page at Strange Planet Productions. Uh, for more information and uh, to order tickets. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, about the um, the energy crisis in 1973, and you're saying that that was, that was engineered at a Bilderberg Group meeting. Well, you know, in, in May 1973, the Bilderberg is met at this exclusive resort in Sweden, this town called Salsobaden. And so the, the key point on the Bilderberg meeting agenda was the oil shock of 1973, the 400% targeted increase in the price of OPEC oil in the near future. Now, what happened was that the oil shock, was, it was in fact, you know, a hoax. It wasn't just a shock of 1973 and continued until 1979. And, and the whole point of this oil shock or crisis was to create a nominal flow of money into the hands of the Saudis and the other Persian Gulf wealthy nations. And so what the oil hoax ultimately did was it created this enormous volume of wealth transfer nominally into these OPEC countries, the so-called petrodollars, but all that money went to London and Wall Street to be managed. So the financial oligarchy and its 
uh, major centers use the oil hoax to establish an absolute domination over world credit and to make sure that it no longer went for any development. Now, the reason the whole thing was orchestrated in the first place, Richard, is if you remember, because of the low oil prices in the early 1970s, you know, the third world countries, uh, you know, Latin America and, and, and African nations, they were in the process of becoming the competition, you know, to the Rockefellers and the European and American elite. And to make sure that didn't happen, the, the Bilderbergers agreed in this 1973 May meeting to push the oil prices up from a 350 a barrel to somewhere between 10 and 12 dollars a barrel and you know 6 months later the oil price went to 11.65 which is right in the middle between 10 and 12 and we have the documents you know from the 1973 Bilderberg meetings where you see on, on page 65 how they were deliberating and actually agreeing on the consensus of how they would move this oil price up you know from 350 a barrel to somewhere between 10 and 12 dollars a barrel and when you when you kind of see these things happen and of course as a result of this 400% targeted increase in the price of OPEC oil you know the emerging economies you know they were wiped out and again what emerged is the again the Rockefellers and the European elite uh, became the uh, the 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 uh, full scale owners of uh, of you know this progress and development which uh, uh, which we're trying to destroy and you know in in, in the uh, emerging economies. So it was a money tran it was a wealth transfer essentially. Exactly, you know the same thing as as, as you know, we can talk about another wealth transfer, which was uh, you know the Great Depression, which really wasn't the Great Depression. It was the transfer of wealth. You know, we, you know, the people, we lost our monies, our, our you know our shares, our you know if we had gold, our houses, and so on and so forth. And then somebody else came along, such as the Bank of America, for example, and bought everything up for pennies on the dollar. And so that's how Bank of America became you know Bank of America. You know, it emerged uh, you know through the. Uh, uh, the uh, Great Depression, uh, the transfer of wealth. So when you kind of look at these crises, be it, uh, you know the crisis of today, the crisis of the 1973, the Great Depression, and so on and so forth, the money doesn't disappear. It simply changes hands. And usually we lose, and the elite, be it the Bilderbergers or their members, make all the money at our expense. So uh, how does it work then that uh, you have these media moguls that, that end up being invited? I believe... Um, uh, confirm or deny was the late Peter Jennings was once attending a, a Bilderberg meeting. I believe uh, is that true? Did Peter Jennings did he attend? Yeah, I, 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 Peter Jennings attended the meeting. Uh, uh, Peter Mansbridge uh, from CBC. He also attended the meeting in 2010. We have photographs of him at the uh, at the Sieges, uh meeting in Spain, the outskirts of Barcelona. Um, all the media, the mainstream publications, they're all members of Bilderberg. But over the years, Fox has attended, uh, CNN obviously has been there, New York Times, Washington Post, Le Monde, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, all these publications, they attend. And the reason that they attend is because, again, they agreed to keep quiet. And a lot of the people who don't understand how these conspiracies work think that it's absolutely impossible to keep it secret, but it's actually very easy to keep it secret because when you get the presidents and the prime ministers and the ministers of finance, you know, the presidents of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, you know, European Central Bank, Federal Reserve, and so on and so forth, all get together and work together towards a common goal. If somebody doesn't follow in the footsteps, it's not that they're going to kill them. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. It's simply you're going to have this, you know, these individuals completely isolated from, you know, from the rest of the wealth, world's 
wealth, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, you know, to actually do anything productive. And so, uh, you know, again, all of these people, it's, 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 you know, call it the boys club or, you know, old boys club, whatever you want to call it. But again, these elitists, and there are not that many of them, but the fact is that they attend these meetings. And since 1954, very little you know, reliable information has come out of these meetings and, you know, the bits and pieces that do come out because Jim Tucker had sources, I have sources, at, you know, at, at these meetings, which is one of the reasons why, you know, so much of what I've said over the years has, you know, unfortunately have come true. Uh, but uh, again, the information is, is, uh, is, uh, is very difficult to come by. And we're just fortunate that, uh, you know, Jim Tucker, the late Jim Tucker, way back when, about 35 years ago, got into this. And he also got into this, you know, a bit of, you know, the same way I got into this because somebody told him about this, you know, secret meetings of, of these private organizations. They just couldn't believe that these things could actually happen, you know, under our noses. And, you know, he started following and has been doing it, you know, until he died, uh, I can't remember, three or four years ago. And uh, so, but again, there's a, there's a lot of uh, media attention today, but unfortunately, reliable information is, is, uh, is uh, next to none. How do you work? How do you come out of these meetings? But we do. How do you? How does it work for you? How do you find out where the meeting is going to take place in advance? How does that work? Well, you know, I've been doing this for for uh, since 1995, so about you know over 20 years now, and uh, I've developed sources inside the meeting because again, a lot of the people who attend these meetings, they don't understand. They don't. They don't know. Uh, that there's a you know a well organized structure behind these meetings. Not just you go meet people, you know, <clears throat> get your networking going, your contacts, you know, you exchange business cards, and yeah, and that's it. It's you know it's it's a kind of thing where you have the first meeting. You know, if you kind of look at all the meetings that take place throughout the year. Uh, uh, it, the the first big meeting is uh, Davos at the end of January. Then you have you know the Trilateral Commission in Americas in February. They have the you know Council of Foreign Relations in March. You have the G7 in April. Bilderbergers in May. Uh, you know International Monetary Fund, World Bank. You know annual meeting September. In between you have you know the the uh, the Council of Ministers of European Parliament. You know the President of the United States meets. You know the Prime Minister of Canada. You know cabinet ministries and so on and so forth. But there's nobody like nobody's leading these meetings. So you have this bad guy, you know, with the big scar, like, you know, in the, in the James Bond movie, you know, who's the headmaster. <laughs> yeah, but stroking well, a Siamese well, cat with what, long fingernails. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's not like, it's not like a James Bond movie. It's not like you have, you know, this four old geezer sitting in a dark room, holding hands, staring at a crystal ball, planning the world's domination. The world is a very complex place. But what happens at Davos... You know, the conclusions are passed on to, you know, the CFR, to you know, the Trilateral Commission meeting, you know, G7, Bilderberg, and so on and so forth. And you have a consensus emerges over time. And this consensus is picked up by the mainstream publications and pushed through on the world stage as the agenda. And, you know, when people who attend these meetings uh, find out who are not, you know, the inner circle, what's going on, they, you know, they're terrified because they know what's, they, they see what's going on. All right, Daniel, i got to take a time out. Got to take out. a time out. But that is scary. It's one thing to be a journalist, to go there, to attend, and then be sworn to secrecy. But it's another thing uh, to then be pushing that agenda through the mainstream media. That is nefarious. All right, Daniel Esterlin stays with us, award-winning investigative journalist and author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The owners of The System are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Daniel Estulin is a Pulitzer Prize nominee, award-winning investigative journalist, author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, and his uh, brand-new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. Uh, you will you can see the theatrical premiere here in Canada on Sunday, April the 17th at the University of Toronto's J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. Daniel will be live there and presenting the film and then uh, delivering a um, sort of a PowerPoint presentation and taking questions, and then there'll be a a meet-and-greet after, and he'll be uh, signing copies of his book. Uh, Really excited about this, Daniel. This is, I mean, it's really time, it's time for people in North America to appreciate what's going on, the way that they, I mean, they know about these things in, in Europe. They know about these things in South America. What is it about here in Toronto or here in North America, is there, is there a firewall around the mainstream media that, that doesn't exist elsewhere? What is it? Well, you know, because, again, you know, the, the power of the, of the North American mainstream press is, is overwhelming uh, on the one hand. But also, you know, that said, you, I mean, you can't uh, – I mean, look, my publisher in America, Chris Milligan of Trinday Press, it's a small publisher. Nobody – you know, no, no uh, Penguin Books or Random House will publish my books, obviously. But still, you know, we sold over half a million copies in the United States alone. And uh, when I did uh, – uh, 10 years ago when the, when the book first came out, you know, and, and Fidel Castro invited me in 2010 to visit him after he read the, you know, the true story of the Bilderberg group in, in Spanish, no? Uh, well, Bilderberg went to number four on, on Amazon.com. So, again, there's a lot of attention is being paid by, but, but, but as you said, it's, it's very difficult to get through to the mainstream press. You don't usually get interviewed on CNN or Fox or you know, New York Times. You don't get your book reviewed because for obvious reasons, as we've discussed before, mainstream publications form part of the world elite. All right. Um, how We were talking about how you get your information. Uh, how soon will you find out who's on the, uh, the invite, invite list for the, for the next Well, one? that's usually – well, you know, this, this meeting is being held in, uh, in, in May. So what, what basically happens is um, – uh, the way that you know the structure of, of of the attendees is put together, you get about 120, 130 people who attend these meetings. The, uh, the United States gets about a third of the delegates because it's the biggest country. Um, European, large European nations usually get about you know five, six delegates. Um, smaller countries like Spain and uh, and Greece and Portugal, Denmark, you know they get about two, three. Usually, people who come from 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 each of these countries, you have one uh, mainstream media representative. You know, some big big politician and, uh, you know, billionaire owner of some, you know, corporation. In the United States, needless to say, you have people from the foundations and think tanks, uh, corporate media, uh, corporations, and so on and so forth. And uh, But what usually happens is that each country has their own uh, Bilderberger representative. In other words, this person is in charge of putting together the initial list which is, uh, you know, once the meeting is done in May, by about uh, end of July, early August, you have the initial, you know, proposal of about 20 to 30 names, which are submitted to the, you know, the Bilderberger Inner Circle, Bilderberger Committee, uh, from each country's delegates. So you have, uh, again, uh, about uh, 30 people from each country submitted, you know, to the original uh, uh, original list, submitted to the, uh, to the Bilderberg Inner Circle. And then they start kind of working that list down, 
And by early January or mid-January at the latest, you have the first, you know, the, the initial final list of the potential delegates. And these usually, especially now in the United States with the elections coming up, you're going to have, um, you know, promising senator or somebody who could, you know, make a difference, you know, in in, in future of, of the Supreme Court. This is what happened back in 2004 in Italy when John Edwards, when he was, uh, you know, running for, uh, on the Democratic ticket uh, with, uh, with John Kerry for, you know, for the vice presidency. He was invited to the Bilderberg meeting. They heard what he had to say, you know, on the state of the, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the United States, of the Union, and they really liked it a lot. And so the New York Times actually had to admit, once once I reported in the Bilderberg report, that uh, it's quite possible that John Edwards was picked as the vice presidential candidate on a Democratic ticket because of the great impression he made at the 2004 Bilderberg meeting. And that's usually how these how these things work. The you know the, I won't have the final list until the uh, probably about a week before the meeting starts. Because uh, they keep that very close to the chest, and, right? And I got to ask you though. Is really- I got to ask you about Trump. I mean, this guy is the ultimate outsider. He has a lot of establishment people. Never mind, you know, his unpresidential uh, persona. Uh, but, but the fact that he is really, and this is historic. He is. Yes, he's very wealthy, but he. I mean, he's a he's a piker compared to the the, the, the attendees at the at the Bilderberg meeting. Do you think he would get a meet? Would he get an invite, or is he? considered a pariah because he's not part of the club and he's not going to go along with their agenda. Well, he wouldn't he wouldn't get an invite for for one very simple reason. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. You know, he'd come out and blabber it all out, you know, to the public the, the following day. It's not that, you know, it, it has nothing to do with being a millionaire or a billionaire because you could say the same thing in Italy. The former prime minister of Italy, you know, Silvio Berlusconi, who has a, you know, personal wealth of over 30 billion dollars. He was never invited to a Bilderberg meeting because he was a nationalist. And he could also, he could never keep his mouth shut. Do you know what I mean? So that's why they would never invite Trump because, you know, he'd just blabber it aloud the next day. Do you think but, you know, the, the Bilderbergs are, Trump, do you think the Bilderbergs are, are very concerned about Trump taking the White House because he is a nationalist? <clears throat> well, you know, again, it all depends. I don't think he's a nationalist. It just all depends, you know, on, on how you want to look at it. If you look at it from the point of view of the elite and you kind of forget about Bilderberg for a second because, you know, above Bilderberg, there's a lot of other organizations far more powerful than they are. You kind of have to look at, you know, what's important to the elite, you know, as far as the world agenda is concerned. And what's important today, Richard, if you kind of look on the world stage, is infrastructure. And this is one of the things we'll be talking about at the conference. I'll explain how, for example, back in the 1990s, you know, some of these very powerful people, you know, they basically uh, took out all the wealth of the G7 nations and they reinvested that wealth, you know, into the emerging markets. Now they bubbled these markets, and 20 years later, what they're going to do? You know, they're going to explode these markets. And you look, you look, you're seeing at the, for example, the uh, uh, some of these bubbles, uh, the the uh, derivatives bubble. That's a 2.4 quadrillion dollar bubble. I mean, you could never pay that thing off. And so the whole point is all that money is going to be reinvested in infrastructure. It's going to be reinvested in in infrastructure in countries such as India and China, which is the world's, you know, largest countries, most populous nations. And also it's going to be reinvested, you know, in space-based economy, which is a very, very important point. And if you kind of look at the people, for example, who run Chinese Politburo, they're not lawyers or investment bankers. They're all engineers. And so the elite is who run the world from behind the scenes, they need somebody who could, you know, take this wealth and manage it, you know. And, you know, Hillary Clinton is, she, she's not, uh, uh, she, you know, she's not equipped to do that because she's a lawyer. 
there. And, you know, Trump is not equipped to do that because, you know, he's just a big blabbermouth. And that's one of the reasons, if you kind of think back a couple of months ago, they, you know, they have this trial balloon where Bloomberg said that he was going to run for office. And, you know, they shut that down quickly because, you know, they realized in 24 hours that his approval rating was like, you know, 0.5%. So I wouldn't, you know, put it past them. It's not just Trump or Hillary Clinton. They're going to try to push someone else in there who could actually manage that wealth. And these are, you know, some of the things that people don't see because it's not, you know, easily, uh, you know, evident. But these are the kinds of things that, you know, we'll be talking about at my conference because I want to explain to people how some of these, you know, structures work behind the scenes on a deep geopolitical level. It's not just you know, what you see, it's not black and white. It's not, you know, you know, this guy or that guy. It's not, you know, us against them. And and Trump is, you know, Trump is, again, it's just, it's 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 a protest vote against, you know, the, this this corrupt elite establishment. That's all it is. And, you know, if you have to choose between a Trump and a Hillary Clinton, you know, I'd much prefer Trump because at least, you know, you, you know, you see what he, you know, you get what you see. Well, Hillary, you know, Clinton, you know, she's been involved in drug trade, you know, going back, you know, to, to her husband's administration in the, in the 1990s. You know, she's corrupt to the core. And so between these two, although I wouldn't vote anyone, you know, either one of them for, to, you know, to office. If I had to choose between these two, I'd certainly vote for Trump. All right. Well, Daniel, uh, this is going to be uh, an amazing event. Can't wait to, you know, it's, I think, I don't think we've actually met in, in person for 10, 12 years. Uh, we, we've you know, had conversations on Skype, so it's going to be great to see you. You're going to be uh, uh, flying in. I don't know if you remember, Richard, but you were, you know, actually, uh, when I came to Toronto back in 2007 to, you know, to, to promote my book when it was first released in the United States, you know, you uh, were the first people who interviewed me live on the radio. I thought it was before Toronto that, but maybe, okay, I thought it was a little earlier than that, but no, maybe. No, 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 it, okay. it was 2007. All right, still almost 10 years ago. in Spain ago. in 2005. All right, nearly exactly. 10 years ago, but it's been too long, but uh, we're going to we're gonna rectify that on April the 17th, and you'll be on the stage. We certainly will. At the J.J.R. McLeod uh, Auditorium at the University of Toronto, and again, people can go to strangeplanet.ca, uh, go to the live events page, get their tickets, uh, and again, a very special uh, promotion. If you go to, if you go in store at Conspiracy Culture, our friends Patrick and Kadena, buy the tickets in store. Use the code word Rockefeller, you'll get a twenty percent discount. We'll uh, we'll do that for about a week. All right, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, safe travels, and uh, we will see you here on the seventeenth. Richard, thank you so much for having me on your show. And needless to say, I'm looking very much forward to the event in my hometown, Toronto, Canada. There you go. Daniel Estulin, award-winning investigative journalist, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Albert, uh, again, running our HOA, and it seem, things seem to be working very well. Excellent. All right. Uh, my website, again, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. S-Y-R-E-T-T and as always follow the truth
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I am Richard Sarrett. Greetings to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. All of you catching the show on one of our affiliate stations. Uh, the podcast, of course, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you watching the uh, the radio show on the HOA, Hangout On Air. Uh, those listening in on your smartphones and tablets using the amazing Zoomer Radio app, which recently underwe- uh, underwent a slight redesign, and it looks and sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, and that's a free download, by the way, the Zoomer Radio app. And, of course, uh, the Conspiracy Show app. Also a free download from uh, Google Play and the Apple Store. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid the welcome. Uh, medical researcher, documentary filmmaker Ty Bollinger is standing by to talk about cancer, uh, alternative cancer treatments. Uh, and we'll get to that in just moments. Uh, I've just returned from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was on location for a, a series that airs on the Travel Channel, and it's called National Park Mysteries. It's in its second season. Um, I did an episode back in February on Death Valley National Park, and this time around I was in Chaco Canyon. Uh, And this is in the high desert. This is about 6,000 feet above sea level. It's uh, located on the Navajo Reservation. Absolutely beautiful, breathtaking really, the desert. Uh, Red sandstone mesas. Uh, And this is where the, the Pueblo uh, people were, um, which includes about 19 different Native American nations, the Pueblos. Uh, the Na- it includes the Navajo and the Hopi and others. And they built these starting in around the eight, around the ninth century, I guess, 850 AD or so. Uh, the, the Pueblos, or the Anasazi, as they're called, the ancient ones, they built these amazing stone structures uh, called great houses. And, and, and um, a lot of similarities between the, the Pueblos or the Anasazi, and the, the Incas and the Mayans. Amazing edifices they built. Uh, and uh, they were four or five stories high, which by today's standard isn't, standards is not a lot. But back then, you know, a structure four or five stories high and some of these great houses were like apartment complexes, 700 rooms. They had water uh, catch um, basins and uh, water collection systems and, and uh, 
Uh, they were built, these, these edifices, to align with celestial bodies, and they were amazing sky watchers. Uh, they could, you know, they could. They were able to track with great accuracy the the progression of the, of the constellations and the the the, uh, the equinox and the, the winter and, uh, and summer solstices. Uh, an amazing civilization. And the Chaco Canyon, it's actually called the Chaco Canyon National Monument, uh, because it also contains, in, in, uh, besides these ruins, all of these amazing petroglyphs and petrographs or rock art that are painted onto the rock or carved into the stone. Uh, and one in particular, uh, quite fascinating, and it, it seems to uh, depict what appears to be a star man. So one is left to wonder, what were the Pueblo or the Anasazi saying? Were they saying that they were in communication with a race of extraterrestrials? Uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was fascinating to be there. I've never been to Albuquerque. And my driver picked me up in, in Old Town, Albuquerque, and drove me out to uh, the location on the Navajo Reservation. And I discovered, when we pulled in, we were filming uh, in the exact loca- location where the opening sequence to Breaking Bad uh, was filmed. Now, I'm probably only one of a handful of people on the planet who hasn't seen that show, but I know many of you are probably fans. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And our location manager, Tom, who is a, a really terrific guy from the Navajo uh, Nation, was wearing this Better Call Saul hat. And uh, because he's also the location manager for that show, uh, as well as he, he was for Breaking Bad, and he's trying to convince uh, the, the production for Better Call Saul to come to New Mexico and film there as well. Uh, because those programs, they bring in a lot of money into the Navajo Reservation, tourists, etc. Anyway, great time in New Mexico. Heard some amazing stories down there about shapeshifters and strange disappearances along a stretch of highway uh, just outside Albuquerque in the south part of the town. I was warned not to, to wander there off on my own. Uh, I believe it's called the Hondo Valley. Uh, anyway, that's for another time and another show. All right, uh, let's discuss this scourge called cancer, shall we? When did Nixon declare the war on cancer? Like 45 years ago? And uh, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't look like we're winning. There's something we're missing. We're not doing something right. We've been using basically the three same arrows in the quiver for about 70, 80 plus years. Chemo, radiation, surgery. And uh, are we making any headway? In some areas, perhaps. In others, not so much. You know, they say if you live long enough now, you will die of cancer at some point. Um, so we may be, we, you know, we have to rethink things a little bit. And I, I'll take this opportunity to, to issue sort of our, our medical disclaimer, and that is, listen, we're not here to offer false hope. Uh, you, whatever you hear, please, you know, do your own research. Talk to your physician. That being said, let's welcome Ty Bollinger to the program. He's a CPA, a health freedom advocate, medical researcher, documentary film producer, talk radio host, best-selling author of Cancer, Step Outside the Box, a guide to understanding herbal medicines and surviving the coming pharmaceutical monopoly, and co-author of Unlock the Power to Heal. He's appeared numerous times on Fox News, co-hosts a weekly radio show with Robert Scott Bell called Outside the Box, After losing several members to cancer, including his mother and father, Ty Bollinger refused to accept that chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery were the most effective treatments available for cancer patients and began a quest to learn all he could about alternative cancer treatments and the medical industry. 
He traveled the globe, interviewing renowned doctors, scientists, and cancer survivors, and presented his findings in the documentary miniseries The Quest for the Cures, which came out about two years ago, and The Truth About Cancer, A Global Quest, last year, both viewed by over 5 million people worldwide. And we should point out that Ty will also be appearing at the Total Health Show, North America's premier natural health show, and that's uh, right here in Toronto. And uh, that is taking place on April 8th, 9th, and 10th at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre, and we'll uh, give you more details as the hour progresses. Let's welcome Ty Bollinger to The Conspiracy Show. Ty, how are you? Richard, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Uh, a real pleasure. Uh, obviously, you know, as you uh, we've pointed out, this is something that hits home uh, to you, losing both parents uh, to cancer. There's nobody uh, in this listening audience who has been untouched by cancer. I mentioned the war on cancer declared by, I think it was Nixon, over 40 years ago. Um, we're losing, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are losing. I mean, we, not much progress has been made in the research of cancer treatments in the last 40 years. Um, I, I, to me, it seems like we're kind of in the dark ages, the middle ages. <laughs> when, it, when, it, when you look at the advancements that have been made, Richard, in other areas of medicine, um, for instance, with you know surgeries that people can now have uh, eyes replaced and heart replacements and limbs working again that have been uh, severed, um, we've really made miraculous strides in many areas of medicine, but we have not made miraculous strides in the area of cancer treatment. We are still using the same treatments, basically the same three treatments that we've been using for half a century, and more people today are dying from cancer than ever before. So I, I would say we're not winning the war against cancer. Uh, it's Now, I, I remember reading about a guy named Otto, it was it Otto Warburg, who back in the 1930s, I think he won like a Nobel Prize uh, when he, he came out and he said, this is the cause of cancer, and, and he seemed to get a lot of recognition uh, for that. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I mean, we don't read about Warburg in, in the textbooks. Uh, you know, there are no statues erected to this guy. You know, he's identified the cause for cancer. Um, well, let me ask you, what do you was Warburg onto something? What do you think the cause of cancer is? He was. He was onto something. Um, he, he was he was uh, partially correct. Um, not not he was not incorrect. He just didn't have the whole picture at that time. But Warburg's thesis for the I think it was 1932 Nobel Prize was that cancer is largely caused by hypoxia, which is lack of oxygen at the cellular level, um, as well as um, uh, the, the, the respiratory mechanism of the cancer cell switching to being that of anaerobic, which is without oxygen. In other words, cancer cells produce energy by fermenting sugar in a hypoxic environment. And that, that was the gist of his thesis, if I have it correct. Now, he was correct. That, that, that is true. Cancer cells ferment sugar. That is the way that they produce energy. That's why it's so damaging for an oncologist to be treating a, a cancer patient and to, to tell them that what they eat does not matter, to tell them that the diet doesn't matter, eat whatever you want to put on the weight because, you know, you're, you're in the cachexia cycle, your body is wasting away, so eat whatever calories you want. The, the quality of the calories don't matter. That's why, that to me, that's so damaging, such damaging advice because if you're eating refined sugars, ice cream, cakes, donuts, candies, the things that many oncologists will you know, um, advise a cancer patient to take that is wasting away, you're actually feeding the cancer cells. You're giving them the fuel that they need to thrive 
and the spread. And so um, that was part of, of Warburg's thesis. Um, there are many causes for cancer. But, I mean, to, to me, from the research that I've done over the last 15 to 20 years, I see a huge increase in environmental toxicity over the last century. As cancer rates have risen, so have the toxins that our body is exposed to. And these toxins can create uh, hypoxic-type environments, low oxygen in the cells. They can create uh, compromised immune function, which can lead to cancer spreading. If you have a, an immune system that's working properly, you will not be diagnosed with cancer because we all produce cancer cells every day. The immune system is functioning properly, we're not going to face a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. But if our immune system is compromised, if we are exposed to these toxins, which is, they're ubiquitous today, Richard. They're in the air, they're in the water, they're in the food that we eat. We are constantly exposed to toxins. That's a big piece of the puzzle. And that's even admitted on the American Cancer Society website. Um, if you go there, there's a, it's a PDF file called Cancer Facts and Figures. And they, they state, I think, in, in the document, upwards of 85% of cancers are a result of environmental toxicity. So it's not really anything that's even debated by mainstream anymore. Toxins in our environment are causing cancer. All right, we'll uh, come back and continue our conversation with Ty Bollinger, health freedom advocate, medical researcher, documentary film producer, talk radio host, and best-selling author of Cancer, Step Outside the Box, A Guide to Understanding Herbal Medicines and Surviving the Coming Pharmaceutical Monopoly. Uh, and he'll also be appearing at the Total Health Show here in Toronto, April 8th, 9th, and 10th at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Back with more. Don't go away. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Ty Bollinger is with us. And uh, the website, thetruthaboutcancer.com, we've linked up to that on uh, strangeplanet.ca. Just click on Ty's name when you go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Click on Ty Bollinger's name, and that'll take you right to thetruthaboutcancer.com. Does our inability to to get an upper hand on cancer, does it stem from um, a misunderstanding of cellular chemistry? You know, that's a good question, Richard. I, I really don't know what it stems from. Um, I, I know part of what it stems from, and part of what it stems from is the fact that we're not getting a, a better understanding of cancer because much of, the, much of the powers that be, I guess if you want to say it, the, the, the people that are making money or living off of cancer don't really want to find the answer to cancer. Now, I'm not indicting everyone that's involved as a doctor or a nurse or that's involved in cancer research at all. I think they're good people. I think that they're being miseducated because I think there is so much money to be made in cancer that there are, look, there, we go back to 1953, the United States Senate in the Fitzgerald Report of 1953, they concluded that there was an active conspiracy in the United States to suppress natural cancer treatments that worked by the American Medical Association. Um, so th- this is not, you know, I heard you talking last hour about conspiracy theories. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy fact. 
according to the United States Senate in 1953, that the AMA does not want any natural treatments for cancer to be known. And so if, if, they're, if they're purposely suppressing treatments that have very good track records, why is the question that we have to ask? If the real goal is to cure cancer, why are treatments that work being suppressed? And the only answer is there's a lot of people that are making a living off of cancer. And, and again, it's, it's not an indictment of the doctors and the oncologists that have been miseducated. All the way back to 1910, we can go to the, the Flexner Report. This is the reason that they've been mis miseducated, because the medical school curriculum in the United States was co-opted by big business, by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. That's why they're miseducated. That's why drugs are pushed so heavily today in medical schools. But the reality is there's a lot of money to be made in perpetuating a disease as opposed to curing it. Talk to me about uh, the statistics uh, regarding the, the efficacy of chemotherapy. Well, it, you know, it, it really depends upon the, the kind of cancers. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there are some cancers that chemo works pretty well on and, and radiation works pretty well on. I mean, if you look at uh, testicular cancer, Lance Armstrong is the poster boy for, for this type of cancer, and he, he healed his cancer using traditional treatments, or, uh, you know, such as chemo and radiation. I, I say traditional treatments, but uh, they're not really traditional. They're, they're less than 100 years old. That's really not the definition of traditional. Traditional treatments are nat naturopathy and herbs and medicine that have been used for millennia. That's really what traditional treatments are, but we've, they've co-opted the language. I remember you, you, were, you were talking about they've co-opted the language, and they, they control the argument with co-opting the language and, make, and redefining words. Well, they redefine that. This is not alternative medicine This is that, that I am an advocate of. This is traditional medicine. That's an excellent Earth point, tradition. an excellent point, right. So thanks. thanks. But in, anyway, so, you know, there are some non-Hodgkin non lymphoma works, chemo will work well on sometimes. So there are a few select cancers that the, these type treatments work, but as a general rule, they don't work very well. Now, if you're looking at, at, at an amalgamation of studies, there was one that was done in, in um, northern Sydney, Australia, at the Northern Sydney Cancer Center. They looked at 22 different types of cancer, and they wanted to determine the contribution of chemotherapy to a five-year survival rate, because that's how we typically measure cancer success. You live five years. They found that chemo, when it comes to five-year survival, looks at a 2.1 efficacy. 2.1% in Australia, 2.3% in the United States. That's not very good, Richard. It's not. It's not very effective. Um, there, there are isolated. That's an understatement. Like That's an understatement. My yeah, word. you might as well do nothing. You literally might as well just do nothing, um, because the, the side effects of chemotherapy are atrocious. I mean, you, everyone knows someone that's done chemo and has lost their hair, has just vomited consistently for during the whole chemo cycles that feels like death has warmed over and many times dies after the chemo. Um, it's, it's a miserable last days. Um, so I tell you what, if you, if you compare that with doing nothing, you, you're probably going to live longer if you do nothing in many instances. Now, of course, I, I appreciate your disclaimer at the first of the, of the program. I'm not a doctor. I'm not recommending anything. I'm just relaying the research that I've done, relaying the families that I've talked to. Look, I was on Coast to Coast about four years ago, and uh, George, George Norrie loves to talk about alternative treatments for cancer. So we were having a good old talk, and I was talking about the, uh, the expense of some of these experimental chemotherapy drugs. Some of them, at that time, I mentioned on the air, were $50,000 per shot, 
$50,000 for one chemo injection. A man called up on, on the show and said, Ty, you were a little bit off. My mother w went in for a, a visit with her general practitioner just a few weeks ago. She was, had no symptoms. It was just an annual exam. He found cancer. He said, it's, you're, it's terminal. You've got to work, you know, you've got to get on your chemo immediately, which is the fear that they do instill in people. You've got to treat it immediately, even though she had no symptoms. It was $70,000, Richard, for oh one treatment. She died oh in 14 days as a result of the treatment, not the cancer. So, look, it's a big racket. Uh, I'm sorry if that offends people, but the, that's the reality of it. It's, it's a racket. And it's not healing people. It's really it's killing more people than it's healing. Well, here's and, a here's a uh, this is kind of a general statement about pharmaceuticals, and and obviously you know drugs do save lives, and there are some wonderful, um, amazing drugs out there for yes. for all a whole host of ailments. But here's the big elephant in the room that nobody talks about, and to me it's scandalous, and that is when you have doctors who are being taken on all-expense-paid trips around the world to lecture and talk about certain drugs, all right? Mm -hmm. They are taking money to talk about drugs and to, to, to advocate to their patients that they take certain drugs. That is a monumental conflict of interest. When you have these so-called, you know, peer-reviewed journals, The Lancet, The New England Journal of Medicine, and you flip through the pages, and what are, who are the advertisers? Pharmaceuticals. What is wrong with this picture, Ty? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're right, Richard. There, there are, uh, there, there's definitely a place for drugs, and drugs have saved lives. There's no doubt about it. But the reality is many of the drugs that are being prescribed are actually taking lives, and that's not my opinion. That's Let's fact on the FDA's own website, they admit that 100,000 people in the United States alone die from properly prescribed prescription drugs. Richard, that's that's not drugs that are that are over the, that are that are uh, illegal black market drugs. These are drugs that are prescribed by a prescription by a physician for a certain ailment properly, and the people still die. That's 100,000 deaths a year that are dying from properly prescribed prescription drugs. Can you imagine, Richard, if someone that was selling um, vitamin C and 100,000 people were dying a year from taking this vitamin C? I mean, can you imagine just one person? How, how quick would it be before vitamin C was no longer available? Exactly. And, and these wrongful death suits are settled out of court, and it's basically the cost of doing business. It is. It's the cost of doing business. And here's something else that you mentioned. I'm glad you brought this up. You, you mentioned these, uh, the medical journals <coughs> and these doctors that are being, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, bought off by the drug companies. Look, when you, people don't understand about ghostwriters. This happens all the time with pharmaceutical companies. So let's say big pharma company A wants to get a, uh, an article published about uh, naproxen. I'm just making up a name. This is a new drug, naproxen. So they write the study up. They write the article up. They have someone, a ghostwriter, on their staff of this big pharma company that is taking this drug to market, and they tout the, all of the great things about naproxa. Well, what they do then is they shop medical doctors that want to be published that have never written articles, and they say, hey, would you like your name to be on this article? We'll, we'll, it's already written. You just sign off on it, and you'll be published in a major medical journal. And the doctor signs off on it. And the pharmaceutical company that's actually selling the drug is the one that wrote the article. It's just signed by a medical doctor, but it was ghostwritten by someone on the staff of the pharmaceutical company trying to tell us how great this drug is. And then it gets published, 
and it gets quoted and it gets repeated over and over in these medical journals. And the reality is that the drug company wrote it themselves. This happens all the time in big pharma. That you're telling me for real that happens. It happens all the time. Oh my Ghost written articles are are par for the course. Uh, still, when we're talking about uh, these peer reviewed journals, uh, a yep. peer review is important, and 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 often the criticism about a lot of these alternative therapies is this. Okay, so you think you've got something? All right, subject it to peer review. Show me the double blind study, and and then maybe you know we'll 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 seriously look into it. But sure. so, how do you respond to that? Well, uh, there have been many of these treatments that have been peer-reviewed, and they have had the, these these studies. For instance, there was um, back in uh, the 80s, there was a, actually a dentist in Texas. His name was William Donald Kelly. He had cured his own pancreatic cancer using in, <coughs> excuse me enzyme therapy. He had he had used taken high doses of proteolytic or protein digesting enzymes. Now, the I'm trying to think of the, it was, I think it was Sloan Kettering out of New York uh, sent down a group of doctors, or it may have been Columbia University, but they sent down a group of doctors to discredit Dr. Kelly. He had over 30,000 patients, and they went through over 10,000 of his records in, in, in an attempt to discredit him, and in, in the end, they found that his treatment was legitimate, and he had a 93% cure rate when it came to five years. Now, his, these studies were then subjected to peer review these patients were contacted and this this is one of those treatments that they don't want you to know about because it stood up to peer review now it wasn't they didn't do any double blind placebo testing on it but it was peer reviewed and it was found to be legitimate now that was the same treatment if you're familiar with dr nicholas gonzalez who unfortunately passed away last year from new york city that was the treatment that nicholas gonzalez uh took to the next level and was using to treat advanced cases of cancer even cancers like pancreatic cancer. He had one patient that I was able to interview that it was 35 years out from a, can- a pancreatic cancer. That's diagnosis. a death sentence normally. That's Richard, a death sentence. Every, yeah. Everyone that's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that does chemo, radiation, or surgery is going to be dead within a year to 18 months most. This lady was 35 years out and completely healthy. Um, there's something to this, and that's, that's not the only one. There, there have been other studies and then, as a matter of fact, if you look at the Fitzgerald Report of 1953, which I mentioned, that was in response to the use of laetrile, which is vitamin B17 or amygdalin. It comes from apples, seeds, and, and apricot seeds. And this was, this, this was some studies that were done at Sloan Kettering uh, later. Well, actually, no, let's see. I'm trying to get my facts straight. The Fitzgerald Report of 53 was not in response to Sloan Kettering studies. It was in response to studies that had been done at another Oncological Center, Sloan Kettering studied Laetrile about 20 years later. But the reality is what happened is this Fitzgerald report determined that there was an active suppression of cancer treatments in the United States, specifically about Laetrile, because they they had done studies, and it was out in California that they did the studies, and they found that it was effective, and they falsified their studies. And what happens, Richard, I don't know if you're aware of this either, and the listeners may not be either, is that when these studies are done, there's a study, and then there's a cliff note of the study, right? You remember back in high school? Sure, Cole's you, Notes, you we call the them. You just, you just got cliff Notes, right? Exactly. You read the cliff Notes to act like you read the book. Well, the, the same thing happens with these studies, and what happens is that the doctors will read the cliff Notes of the study as opposed to reading the entire study. But the problem that we find now is that a lot of times the cliff Notes are exactly the opposite of what the study says. 
And so doctors are reading cliff notes, and they're learning exactly opposite of what the truth is because they didn't bother to read the study. They read the cliff notes, but the authors of the study falsify the cliff notes. Now, they're not called cliff notes. They're just summary studies. But that happens, and that happened in the California report of 1953, which, which was then referenced in the Fitzgerald report of 1953, and they found that the studies were actually being done, but then the results were being falsified. I could go on and on. The reality is these, many of these treatments have been studied. The, the problem is, though, that we're being lied to about what the study said. Uh, Ty Bollinger is with us, and uh, the website, thetruthaboutcancer.com. Uh, on the website, you've got 10 tips for preventing cancer in young adults, and uh, maybe we can walk through some of those. We're coming up on a break, but we'll start the conversation now and continue after. Some of the tips for preventing cancer in young adults. Can you? Uh, we can start that conversation now. We're not quite ready for the break yet, oh. uh, Ty. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about some of these tips. Okay. Um, well, let me let me think about what they. I, it's been a while since I've written that article. Um, well, number one, I guess, would be for anyone, you've got to be able to get enough uh, vitamin D. Okay. So that's one thing that many people don't realize is that you're going to be told, don't get out in the sun. Okay. But you got to get out in the sun because that vitamin D mixes with cholesterol in your skin. To um, I'm sorry, the ultraviolet light in the sun mixes with cholesterol in your skin to produce vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 has been studied, and there was a, I think it was a Creighton University study from 2009 showed that 77% of cancers can be avoided with, with proper dosage of vitamin D, which you can get just from natural sunlight. So that's one good recommendation for the youth, right? Because youth don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of uh, supplement cash, right, sitting around. Well, you don't have to have any supplement cash sitting around. Go out and get some sunlight. We're told to be afraid of the sun, and if we do go out in the sun, put on what, Richard? Sunscreen. The That's problem right. with sunscreen is it contains cancer-causing chemicals. Oh, my. Many of the sunscreens can't contain that. So that's a good, that's a good tip for anyone. I mean, a lot of the youth today are, very, are being uh, influenced by their peers to smoke. If you smoke, just stop, because smoking increases your risk of many types of cancers. But the reality is it's not <laughs> – this is what's – it's kind of bizarre. It's not funny, but it's just weird. People think tobacco causes cancer, and it doesn't. It's not the tobacco. It's the chemicals That's right. that are put on the tobacco when it's processed that cause the cancer. Okay. We're going to head into a break, a break here, Todd. Uh, as we do, I just I, I lit on something when you mentioned uh, vitamin D, and I read this recently about you know, nocturnal animals – uh, for example, the flying squirrel, which is found in the southern part of the United States, otherwise yeah. known as the sugar glider. They, in captivity, they live much, much longer because then they're out in the daylight. But mm. nocturnal animals do not live very long, and, and perhaps it has something to do with a lack of vitamin D. That's interesting. All right, we'll come back and continue to talk about the truth about cancer. Ty Bollinger will also be at the Total Health Show here in Toronto, April 8th, 9th, and 10th at the Metro Convention Center. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4. 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. 
To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Ty Bollinger stays with us. TheTruthAboutCancer.com, the website. And again, he'll be at the Total Health Show April 8th, 9th, and 10th. That's coming up very quickly. And that's at the Metro Toronto Toronto Convention Center, uh, the Total Health Show. What are you going to be talking about there, Ty? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about many natural treatments for cancer. I'll be uh, kind of reviewing my travels over the last year as I went across the globe to interview people in, in 12 different countries and scientists, doctors, researchers about what they are doing, different, you know, outside-the-box type of treatments that they're using for cancer. So, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, also going to be on a, on a roundtable panel and then uh, Friday and Saturday nights this week. We're actually going to be showing a couple of episodes of our latest documentary at the at the close of the conference. Uh, now, is that the uh, Global Quest, uh, a Global Quest yes. documentary? Yes. Yeah, we'll be showing a couple of episodes of the, the uh, Global Quest, uh, episode one on Friday night and episode two on Saturday night. As you travel the world, what what what's the common denominator in terms of uh, uh, populations that you've studied that have very low cancer rates? What's the common denominator? Is it diet? You know, it is, but there's, unfortunately there's not many of them that, that have low cancer rates anymore. And the reason is diet. Um, you know, you look, at, <laughs> you look at civilizations that have been relatively unaffected by cancer, such as the Hunza Indians in northern Pakistan, very, very low rates of cancer, until they relocate and they start eating the typical North American diet and they get cancer. So, yeah, that's a very common denominator. But the people that are healing cancer naturally, one of the things – the common denominators that I've found with them is that they radically changed their diet, and as a result, they got rid of the cancer. Uh, you know, one, such, one such person is Chris Wark, um, ChrisBeatCancer.com. And this guy was 10 years ago was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer at the age of 26, I think. And um, the only thing he did to treat it was he went to a, a completely raw diet, made super salads every day with you know all the cruciferous vegetables and organic everything, just every vegetable you can think of. He threw into a salad, and that's what he ate for six months, and he went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, I don't know what happened, but your cancer is gone. Is there a point, though, of no ret- uh, it's, you know, where it's too late? Or, I mean, if, you're, if it's stage four, for example, uh, mm-hmm. can you still turn it around with that kind of a diet? Absolutely. Um, and and that's, a lot of times diet, and I'm not saying that that's what most people do. Most people, have, they'll, they'll dra- drastically change their diet, but then they'll go into a, a treatment protocol as well. But absolutely, that is, uh, that's very, very common for stage four to be reversed through changing diet and going to a treatment protocol. I just received an email a couple days ago from a lady that was in October this last year when we initially aired the Truth About Cancer, a global quest. She was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Oncologist said, nothing we can do. Chemo radiation won't work. Go get your will in order. You're going to die. You're dead in a month. Uh, and she just refused to believe that, and she radically changed her diet and implemented two or three different treatment protocols. And she just emailed me two days ago, and she said, you know, the, just got my cancer marker test, and there's no cancer in my body at this point. So I, I see that all the time. You know, I mean, people might hear that and say, well, that's just anecdotal. And, you know, well, whatever. It, it may be it's anecdotal, but she's alive. She's not dead, and the oncologist said she'd be dead in a month. So something must have worked. And, and that was a raw food diet? 
she went to a raw food diet and she also implemented a couple of treatment protocols and one of them if i if i remember correctly was uh using hemp oil cannabis oil which is very very effective cancer treatment i was going to ask you about that because you know there was a time about 100 years ago less than 100 years ago when every doctor in his little black bag had a had a vial of cannabis oil uh and and um i mean it was it was seen at that time as kind of a cure all what well, happened it was. what happened yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's one of the uh the things that I'll be covering this weekend in Toronto uh, one of the conspiracies that I talk about that's actually a reality and that is the the hemp conspiracy i mean you're right back in uh, until the late 1930s in the United States hemp was used as a medicine to treat cancer and epilepsy and parkinsons and alzheimers and uh, many different uh diseases that we look at today it's really there's no we have no cure for but hemp was used there it's interesting in the united states we our founding fathers all grew hemp the declaration of independence was was drafted on hemp paper the constitution was on hemp paper model the first model t by henry ford was built with with uh hemp fiber and it ran on hemp fuel i mean hemp is a very very versatile plant but regarding the treatment of cancer it's very very effective so you know that's one of the things that i know that she did and as you mentioned, until the, the 30s, it was made. It was it was used everywhere. It was in, available in pharmacies. I think you could buy it over the counter. But then along came, um, gosh, who was it? I think it was um, uh, William Randolph Hearst. In the in the 1930s, he owned Hearst Paper Manufacturing Division of Kimberly Clark, and he also supplied most paper products for newspapers across the United States. And so. He stood to lose billions because of hemp, because hemp's a much more efficient uh, method of producing paper. You can produce the same amount of paper from one acre of hemp as you can from 10 acres of, of trees. So, um, and, and so then you couple that with the fact that I think it was in 1937, DuPont patented the process of making plastics from oil and coal. And so synthetics like plastics and cellophane and celluloid and nylon and rayon, all these could be made from oil. And so that was another thing that hemp could be used for. But if hemp became industrialized, it would have ruined over 80% of DuPont's business. So what happened is Andrew Mellon became, I think it was Hoover's Secretary of the Treasury and DuPont's primary investor. He appointed Henry Anslinger, Harry Anslinger, I'm sorry, who I think became his, his, his nephew in the future, his nephew-in-law, um, to head the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Hemp was declared to be dangerous since it was a threat to their billion-dollar enterprises. And this is, this is just the paper industry and the plastic industry. This is before hemp became a threat to the big pharmaceutical industry. But the reality is it was a, it was a threat to big pharma. They, the DEA put this word that had never been used before in the United States out there. It was called marijuana. No one ever knew what marijuana was before that, Richard. Marijuana was never used in the United States. So the propaganda campaign was on. They put out movies like Reefer Madness and they made marijuana illegal. And what's interesting is that at that point, when it was becoming illegal, Dr. James Woodward, who was, a, who was a physician and an attorney, and he was one of the head of the AMA at that time, he testified before Congress that the reason that the AMA had not denounced the, the marijuana tax law and had not denounced the fact that marijuana had become illegal was that they did not know marijuana was the same thing as hemp. Okay, listen, i got to jump in here, Ty, because we're going into a break. We'll pick up on that point when we come back. The Truth About Cancer with Ty Bollinger, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Ty Bollinger is with us, health freedom advocate, medical researcher, documentary film producer, talk radio host, and uh, he will be uh, making a presentation at the uh, Total Health Expo, or rather the uh, the Total Health Show, and that's happening April 8th, 9th, and 10th. The Total Health Show, 8th, 9th, and 10th. This is uh, North America's premier natural health show, and it's the Metro Toronto Convention Center. Um, all right. I notice on the website, uh, uh, thetruthaboutcancer.com, you have a, I think there's a video there about Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski, um, who, again, has uh, seemed to made, have made some significant or had significant success uh, with treating cancer using his methods. Can you tell us a little about what about Stanislaw Brzezinski's methods? Yeah, Dr. Brzezinski uses a treatment protocol which he has co- coined uh, anti-neoplastons, and so this is, I guess, the best way to think of it is kind of a missing link between proteins and amino acids, and he's found that the people that have cancer have a deficiency of these anti-neoplastons, so he, he has learned how to synthesize them and inject them into patients, and had very, very good success, especially with brain cancer patients, and um, as a result of this, Dr. Brzezinski has been heavily persecuted over the last 30 years by not only the Texas Medical Board, but also by the FDA. Um, there's, you know, one of the worst things that you can do in the United States is to cure cancer outside of the medical box that you're allowed to. If you use anything other, other than chemo, radiation, surgery, you will be attacked and persecuted, and Dr. Brzezinski has been. Um, I've, be- I've become really good friends with Dr. Brzezinski over the last couple of years, and the man just has a huge heart. He loves, can- he loves cancer patients. He loves people, really wants to help them, and he's helped so many people overcome what was told they were that was terminal cancer he's got what he calls the wall of pictures in his office and these are pictures of babies that were brought to him with brain cancer and then he, he's followed them through their formative years and all the way to where they're 18 20 25 years old and married engaged and now with kids and follows their kids now so it's really it's really neat to see and it's just that's that's what it's all about to him is just helping people and you know unfortunately the way that the fda um, has structured things here in the United States is that, that with him, he, with his treatment, patients are not allowed to do his treatment outside of those that have been approved for his his, his clinical trials. Um, and I think he's in phase three right now, but the people that are not approved are not allowed to do the treatments unless they've exhausted the chemo, radiation, and surgery. And unfortunately, for many people, that actually taxes their body so much. The, I mean, chemo is poison. It, many chemos cause cancer, I and mean, oncologists know this. Radiation causes cancer. Oncologists know this. And for a person that has a sick body, oftentimes going through these treatments actually do much more harm than good and can actually kill them. And unfortunately, that happened. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Brzezinski movie, Cut, Poison, and Burn. Right. So in other words, the, by the time the people get to him, they've gone through the traditional, well, the so-called traditional uh, methods, chemo, radiation, surgery. By the time they get to him, it's almost too late. And so... Uh, this is going to impact obviously his success rates, and then they'll then the the AMA or whomever will say, "See, look, it doesn't work." Sure, they will. I mean, the the natural practitioner always gets the blame. 
even if the real blame should go on the treatment that destroyed the person's body, which is oftentimes chemo and radiation, they will go to a natural practitioner as a last resort after the chemo has already destroyed their body. I mean, there was a, there was a, a study that was published um, out on National uh, Institutes of Health. I think it was PubMed, and I can't remember where it was performed, but it was in the last couple of years, and they showed that chemotherapy actually causes, it actually creates, cancer stem cells and enriches them. It, it enriches cancer stem cells, and those are the boogers that we want to get rid of because those are the cells that produce the daughter cells that will then spread and make the tumor grow and spread throughout the body. The stem cells are the real problem, and the study within the last couple of years shows that chemotherapy actually enriches the stem cells. It makes the cancer worse, and that's what we're seeing, Richard. We're seeing, I'm seeing this, and I know oncologists are seeing this, they may not admit to seeing this, or they may be turning a blind eye, but everyone that goes through chemotherapy, not everyone, I can't say that, a large percentage of people that go through chemotherapy will be told that they're in remission, but then within the next couple of years, the cancer's back, and it's spread. And they wonder why, because they, the, the oncologist said that they were in remission. Well, the reason that, that it spread is that the chemotherapy temporarily killed the tumor cells, it killed the daughter cells, but it enriched the stem cells, the mother stem cells. And that's why the, the cancer usually comes back, and it's worse when it comes back. It's metastasized, it's in other organs, and oftentimes at that point they're told it's terminal, there's nothing they can do. Why? Because the chemo caused it. And then oncologists know this, and so it's just really a sad situation that we're in, that we're using treatments that actually cause the disease that they're supposedly treating. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a, a Dr. Jimmy Gutman, who, is a, who was an emergency room um, a physician, highly regarded, uh, out of Montreal. And, um, and he's talking about, these days, about this, he calls it the, the, the master ox, antioxidant, uh, an immune booster, and it's a natural occurring molecule in the body called glutathione. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you know about glutathione, and what, what what do you think about it in terms of boosting it in order to fight cancer? Yeah, well, you know, it's it, I I've written about glutathione in my book. We mentioned glutathione um, in our documentary, and it, it is an important antioxidant in in both plants, animals, even even fungi, um, and it prevents damage to uh, the cells. And it is referred to as the master antioxidant. And there have been lots of studies that have shown that if we can increase levels of glutathione in the body, that that results in lower levels of cancer. And I, I wouldn't call glutathione a treatment for cancer, but it's, it's certainly something that we should be aware of, that we need to get enough glutathione in our diets um, in order to you know, have, a, have a diet that's high in antioxidants. This is the master antioxidant, and despite what you'll hear from many oncologists that say that if you're undergoing chemo, you should not take antioxidants because they'll, they'll affect the, the, the efficacy of the chemo. That's actually exactly opposite of what the studies have shown, that that's not true. If you're doing chemo, antioxidants are a very good idea. So I think that's just an important building block of our diets is to make sure that we get enough glutathione. It seems like, you know, I, 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 um, I, I believe in God, and, and I, it seems like he created us in, uh, that if we take care of ourselves properly uh, and, and uh, eat the right foods, that we're designed really to, to, to cure these diseases ourselves, that, that uh, we don't yeah. need these kind of interventions. If the body is running along like this magnificent machine that it is, we can fight off all of these diseases. Well, you know what, I, I agree with you completely, Richard. It's the body that does the healing. So, in, in essence, you know, when we say you're, you're, or if we're, we're going to find a cure for cancer, 
The reality is there are no cures for cancer. The reality is, in my opinion, what we have are certain substances like pancreatic enzymes or like laetril or like uh, even oxygen. Certain, certain substances provide the body with what it needs so that it runs the way that it was intended to run. And if the body runs the way that it was intended to run, then cancer doesn't get a foothold. So it's really the body that does the cure, and you're absolutely right. We give it the proper fuel, it runs properly. And that's why when doctors say, they'll tell a patient that their, their diet has no effect on their health, it is so absurd. Because everyone knows that if, you, if you want your, you've got a race car and you want it to run at maximum efficiency, you're not going to put Kool-Aid in the gas tank. You're going to put the proper fuel so that it runs. But why does that not spill over into the advice that a doctor would give us about the fuel for our body? Shouldn't we optimize the fuel? Shouldn't we give our bodies the fuel that they need so that they run properly? Of course we should. I mean, anyone knows that. But So why do we get no advice from our physicians about the nutrition that we need to put in our body so that the body runs properly, and it's the body that then will heal the disease. Well, maybe the answer to that is because in seven years of medical school, I think they're only required to take one course in nutrition. Bingo. Bingo. And that's exactly accurate, Richard. They are not educated on nutrition. And the reason they're not educated on nutrition goes all the way back to what I mentioned earlier, the Flexner Report of 1910, when the medical school curriculum was co-opted by some business guys that wanted to push drugs and they wanted to have a captive market to push their drugs and that was the medical schools and so that's why in 1913 the american medical association actually developed an internal department which they called the propaganda department and their whole function was to malign and slander naturopaths and herbalists and chiropractors and call them quacks and they were very successful and so that's why today we see somebody that has a, a natural medicine degree or a chiropractor or an herbalist and the first thing you think of man they're, they're, those are quacks they're not real medical doctors why because the, because of the flexion report of 1910 because of the propaganda department of the AMA in 1913 they were very successful at co-opting the education and introducing the term quack into the American vernacular I um, I recently uh, narrated an audio book um, about the Flexner Report. That should be coming out soon, and I'll give more details when that when that happens. But uh, uh, tell me a little bit. We just got a couple minutes here, or less than uh, maybe a minute and a half. Uh, the Truth About Cancer, A Global Quest. This came out uh, very recently, this documentary. And are people going to see that at the Total Health Show or parts of it? Well, yeah, we are Friday night, this Friday night. I can't believe it's already here. We will look at, We will watch episode one. Saturday night, we will watch episode two at the end of the day. And then uh, April 12th, which is the following Tuesday, that's when we go live, uh, the Encore presentation. So it's a nine-part documentary miniseries. You can watch one part every night for nine nights. It will stream it for 24 hours. So you can watch it any time in that 24-hour period. Then at eight or 9 o'clock Eastern the next night, we'll go to the next episode. And so it will stream for nine days. And you can just go to thetruthaboutcancer.com to, to sign up. And I think you've got a banner there on your website. They can click through to sign up, watch it for free. There you go. And again, that's The Total Health Show. And people can get tickets at thetotalhealthshow.com, April 8th, 9th, and 10th, Metro Toronto Convention Center. And uh, uh, Ty, really a real pleasure having you on the program. And um, um, I'd like to have you on again sometime soon. I'd love it, Richard. Thanks for all you're doing. I love your show, man. I appreciate it. Ty Bollinger. And again, that documentary. The Truth About Cancer, A Global Quest, and uh, that's the Total Health Show coming up very soon. All right, wow.
Uh, quite a program. That was a good one, I think. I don't mind telling you. I'm kind of proud of this one. Uh, and uh, Albert, of course, proud of him too for uh, putting this all together. Albert Vinzel, my story producer. And uh, Ian Robertson, our erstwhile rockabilly fan, or, or, or rockabilly performer, I should say. And um, he's, uh, of course, responsible for flying this ship. Twisting the knobs and dials. And uh, all of you for listening, I thank you from the bottom of my my heart. We will be back next week with a brand new program. Patria Patrick will be with us to talk about her new documentary film on the Titanic. That anniversary is up and coming. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will be along as well with her monthly report. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.